Turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 3. Last Sunday, I was in Pennsylvania. We went to the uh, National Apple Festival. I had apple cider and apple fritters and apples. I did not know there were so many varieties of apples. Uh, I don't know how you would pick between all of them. We've been working our way through the book of Psalms. We did Psalm 1. We did Psalm 2. Uh, I made the comment that we're going to randomly pick them, but I'm kind of working through all of them. I don't know if I'll continue to do that. I'm sure eventually I'll find one that I don't want to teach, and we'll just skip that one. <laughs> psalm chapter 3 actually has a title associated with it. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. We know exactly when this event occurred in uh, the Bible, so we'll have a little bit of historical background. I'm a little worried about it. Uh, you probably don't remember it. I remember it completely. One day I was teaching in here, and I started talking about one of David's sons, and I'm going off talking about him, and finally somebody raises their hand and says, that's not the right son. And I go, you're right. I had been talking about the wrong one. So hopefully I'll get Absalom right. David had become king. David had multiple wives. He had multiple kids by multiple wives. And one of his sons lusted after one of his daughters, probably a stepsister. And through a little bit of scheming and conniving, that son, Amnon, raped the sister. And after he did so, the sister assumed that he would marry her at that point, but he wanted nothing to do with her. And so she was in disgrace, and her brother, Absalom, wanted revenge. And sure enough, he waited and bided his time, and he and some others finally killed Amnon for what he had done to his sister. So, David finds out about this and essentially banishes Absalom. Go away, I don't want to deal with this. Now, it is interesting we see in the life of David that after his moral problems with Bathsheba, he is very reluctant to exercise moral authority over his family. So he doesn't do anything except he kind of kicks him out. And finally, after multiple years pass, Absalom is allowed to come back, but David doesn't talk to him. And this is bizarre story about Absalom sets fire to the uh, David's general's fields so that David's general will talk to Absalom so Absalom can talk to David. It's a mess. But finally they talk to each other, but Absalom has other ideas in mind. He wants to be king. So he gets some chariots, he gets some guys to follow around, he has the look of being a king. And he shows up early every morning at the gates of the city, because if you remember, in Old Testament times, the gates of the city is where all of the business transactions, all of the legal transactions are conducted. So he sits there early, and somebody comes from somewhere within Israel, 
and he has a problem. And Absalom says, here, tell me your problem. And the guy tells him the problem. And he goes, wow. And Absalom goes, wouldn't it be great if there were somebody, anybody in Israel who cared about your problem? If I were in charge, this is what I would do. And it says that Absalom began to win the hearts of the men of Israel. They began to be more interested in him than they were in David, who was the king. And eventually, Absalom attracts enough people, he assembles an army, and he's coming to Jerusalem to deal with David, and David finds out about this. David gets all of his staff, he gets all of his people, and off he goes, running from Absalom. He is running away. It's actually a very interesting story because, you know, one of his chief advisors wants to go with him. And David says, no, no, you stay back and give advice to Absalom. Just don't give him very good advice. And the priests want to bring the ark with David. And he says, no, y'all go back there. And when you hear something, send word to me so I know what's going on. So he's establishing this network of spies. And to go ahead and end the story, Absalom and his army fight David and his army, and Absalom is killed. And it's kind of interesting because David is wrestling with this problem that he knows he has to do something about Absalom, but he doesn't want to kill Absalom. And he is very sad when Absalom is killed, and his generals are ticked off because they're thinking, no, they don't think, they tell him, would you rather we have lost the battle? And so it's this emotional roller coaster that David is dealing with regarding, to, with regarding Absalom. So, all that's to say, a psalm written while David is fleeing from Absalom. Okay? That's the historical background of the psalm. Now, yes? I don't know his age. I'm sure I could figure it out if I was bright. He is older, okay. And yeah, we probably do know some idea of how old he is. I just don't know it off the top of my head. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings on all your people. Selah. So, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. David had spent his life fighting. He really had. I mean, as a boy, he was a shepherd. We'll talk about this in just a moment. As a boy, he was a shepherd. Eventually, 
he fought Goliath, and when he fought Goliath, he was probably an early teenager, just probably. And shortly thereafter, he's leading troops in battle. Shortly thereafter, he's fleeing from Saul. Shortly thereafter, he becomes king of the southern kingdom. Shortly thereafter, he unifies the kingdom, and he continues to fight the Philistines. He is a warrior. He is used to having people fight against him. He is not used to having his sons fight against him. When we deal with a psalm like this, it is interesting because there's a very easy thing for me, the teacher, to fall into. And that is to tell you, okay, David is fighting this war, and I know you have a hangnail, and that hangnail is just as serious as the problems that David is having. Well, I've had problems in my life that are about, you know, this big. And David has problems that are this big. And I hesitate to compare my problems with the problems that David is encountering right here. But that brings another thought to my mind. And that is if my problems are this big and his problems are this big and he can trust in God to solve his problems, why can't I trust in God to solve my problems. So the principle of the chapter is still valid for us, even though I acknowledge the fact that the problems that I encounter in everyday life do not approach the problems that David is encountering in this chapter. He tells us his enemies are arming. They're around him. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. At this point, he has no idea how many are going to follow Absalom and how many are going to follow him. It's an unknown. One of the worst problems in life is not knowing. Not knowing how bad it really is. Because when we don't know how bad it really is, we begin to multiply the problems in our heads. You know, I have a problem, and I start, I don't know about you, I do this all the time. I lay in bed, and by the time I get up in the morning, this problem is not this big, it's huge. I mean, everybody's after me. Have you ever had that problem? Where you just start thinking? Now, it's interesting, I use the example of going to bed, because David's going to talk about that exact situation here in just a moment. David does not know how many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. What is the lie of the enemy? God isn't going to watch out for you. I mean, let's go back. Let's go back to the very beginning. Eve, garden. Satan talks to Eve. Did God really say that? Did God really say that the moment you ate of the fruit you would die? Did he really? No, no, no. What he really meant was he didn't want you to be like God and he's holding out on you. In our lives, we begin to think that there are times when God cannot, will not, won't, couldn't save us. 
we have done something bad. Now, if you're David, we know what that bad is. We know that that bad is Bathsheba. We know that bad is not dealing with Absalom when he should have dealt. He, in fact, he didn't deal with Amnon when he should have dealt with him for raping his sister. Our enemies are trying to convince us that there is no hope for you. There is no salvation. There is no way you are going to be saved from this. I mean, there's this fascinating story as Absalom is fleeing. I mean, I just think this is, well, it's not funny because the story's not funny. But it's almost funny. As he's running away, here's this descendant of Saul sitting on the hill mocking him. I mean, he's insulting him. You stupid guy. Now you're finally getting what you deserve. And one of David's dudes says, I'll walk over there. I'll chop that dog's head off. We'll be done with this. And you know what? He would have done it. David hung around with tough guys. And David said no. How do we know that this isn't God talking to us? How do we know that this isn't part of God's plan? Even David is beginning to become aware of the problems that he's in. My enemies are standing around telling me that there is no salvation for my soul. Now, I do not want a show of hands. I don't do it. Don't do it. But how many of you have ever laid in bed at night thinking, I did something today that I shouldn't have done, and God has rejected me. Maybe it's not a single event. Maybe it's just a span of time where you have been sinking and sinking, and you begin to think, God isn't going to save me. That's what people are telling David. David, your time is up. You were God's anointed, but your time is done. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Now, there is a lot of discussion about what the word selah actually means. They don't translate it probably because they don't know what it means. The general consensus is that it is some musical term. You know, the Psalms were poems meant to be sung, and this is a cue to do something, like end of the verse. I don't know. I did like one older commentary I was looking at, and it said that it's probably, but we're not sure, a musical term, and it says there are lots of other possible answers, but they're all foolish. <laughs> it actually said that. O oh Lord, let's see, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He lists three things that God is doing for him in the midst of not things going well, but the midst of things going horribly bad. And these are the things that we need to remember 
that God has done for David and God will do for us. But Lord, you are a shield about me. What, this is a hard question, what is the purpose of a shield? Protection. David had been a warrior. David knew what a shield does. You know, it's very important that I've got a nice pointy stick, fighting battles at this time, that I can kill you with. But what is equally important is that I have a shield to protect you from killing me. In fact, it is interesting when you get to warfare, say, with the Greeks, you know, the phalanx, where they all line up with their shield and their spear, and they form a wall. You could lose your spear, but if you lost your shield, you were a disgrace because the shield protected not only you, but the person next to you as you made this wall of shields. That shield had to be there, or you were going to be exposed to the weapons of the enemy. This sounds very familiar to something in the New Testament. What is it? Put on the whole armor of God and put on the shield of faith that you can stand against the arrows and darts of the enemy. Okay. Another question. You could answer this one if you wanted to. Or you could just think about it. What are the arrows and the darts that are being thrown at you on a daily basis. I mean, we know what David's dealing with, right? He's dealing with the reality that his family is not just angry at him, his family is at war with him. Shoot, that's pretty bad. He's dealing with the fact that Saul's descendants are rising up to try to reclaim what they had under Saul. Oh, shoot. But the question is, what are the things that are being hurled at us in our world today that we need that shield of faith to protect us from? Temptations. Insults. You know, pardon? immorality. It's all there. You know, I know, I know people have always sinned, right? People have always sinned. You go back to the church at Corinth in the New Testament. I mean, sin was knee deep. It was there. But it does appear at times that with certain pieces of technology, we have immorality that is so available to us that it would have baffled the minds of previous generations. Temptations are being thrown at us. Temptations in the area of sexual morality, temptations uh, with regard to power and trying to exert things that you shouldn't do, temptations to not trust God, which is the root of all sin. We talked about this when we went through, what, 
the fruit of the Spirit, and the works of the flesh. And we dealt with the works of the flesh, one of which was idolatry. The idea that I'm going to worship something other than God. Every day, in every commercial that you see, there is some idea that if you worship, I mean, if you get this, you will be really hot stuff. And guess what? You're just going to be you. But these are the things that are being thrown at us continually. We live in a society that mocks Christian morality as being intolerant, wicked, and evil. It just does. If you don't believe me, listen to some. No, don't do that. What do we need? What do we need that David knew that he needed and what he knew that he needed was a shield? But he knew that he didn't need one because he had one and that shield was God. What is the shield that we as believers have? It is the shield of faith. What is faith? Faith is believing God's promises. Faith is saying God has told me he will be with me. God has told me that he will walk with me and protect me. But it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. I mean, this is the way my mind works, okay? David, in this psalm, has confidence that God is going to save him from this situation. My mind thinks if God were really in charge, he would have zapped Absalom five years ago. Why did he allow the problems? Why does God allow the problems in our life? Because God is producing in us whatever it takes to conform us to the image of his son, which requires that we have faith. And if we are going to develop faith, we need to... <clears throat> Encounter difficulty. You are my shield, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory. What does that mean, my glory? Is my glory you are my glory, or my glory is my glory, or what? What does glory mean? Anybody know? Praise from other people. Brightness. Huh? You're standing. It is interesting. C.S. Lewis has an interesting essay about that passage in Scripture where it says, He is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And he talks about the fact that glory is means that you are heavy with value, meaning, purpose. You have weight. As opposed to, do you remember two chapters ago in, verse one, in chapter 1 where it talks about the blessed and they are like a tree planted by the water? Not so the wicked. The wicked are like chaff. What does chaff do? Nothing. Guess what? And it has no weight. 
you throw it up in the air and the wind blows it away. The opposite of chaff is glory, weight, as was pointed out, brightness. Now, is this talking about God who is David's glory? Yes. Is it talking about David also? Maybe. Because God is giving purpose and meaning to David's life. Why? Because God has weight, glory, brightness, substance, value. So why does David have weight, substance? Because of his position with God. It is not because of his own doing. It is not because he's brighter or smarter than you, although he may have been smarter than you. I have no idea. I do know he sinned just like you, except for the fact that after he sinned and after it was exposed, he wrote the most beautiful psalm of repentance you've ever heard because he acknowledged his failure to worship God. God is my shield. God is what provides me value because he has value. He is my glory and the lifter of my head. What does that mean? The, huh? Confidence. Confidence. You know, I don't know this for a fact because I wasn't there. But I kind of have this vision of David and all of his group slouching out of town. You know, their heads are down. They're looking at the dust. This is bad news. You know, nobody wants to look at David because David is embarrassed because his son is trying to kill him. You know the situation, right? But I just have this vision. And then I'm, I'm kind of, you know, extrapolating a little bit. That David is sitting there going, what has become of me? What has happened? And he's fleeing, and at some point he realizes, you know, I've done this before. I have run away before. And every time that I ran away, God was my shield. God was my glory. And his head begins to rise, and he begins to think, how is God going to deliver me from this situation? That's my extrapolation. He is the lifter of his head. His head pops up, and he goes, God can handle this. <coughs> Let's remind ourselves. David is a shepherd. David is the last son of a bunch of sons. David is out minding his own business, and one day his father says, take some food to your brothers who are fighting with the army against the Philistines. He grabs the food and he takes the food to his brothers. And as he's standing there with the Philistine army over there and the army of the Israelites over here, out walks this really, really big guy, Goliath. And he sits there mocking the Israelite army. I mean, I can just begin to speculate. I mean, we probably have the PG version 
in the Bible. I don't imagine that he was that clean in his language. I mean, he was calling them and their mothers everything imaginable. And he had been doing this day after day. And David turns and says, why doesn't somebody just go down there and kill him? (laughs) David is a young teenager. Goliath is nine feet tall. He has a huge sword. And the people just stare at him. And David says, I'll do that. Are you nuts? But, you know, they're kind of desperate. So Saul, the king, says, here, have a helmet. Here, have a breastplate. Here, have a big sword. And you can imagine this kid covered in this army. He can't move. And he says, no, take all this away. God is going to win the battle. God is going to lift me up. He doesn't say that, but that's the connection that we're seeing. Sure enough, David goes out there, five stones and a sling. There's been lots of speculation about why he took five stones. You know, did he not have confidence that he'd hit with the first one? I don't know. Could it have been the fact that that Goliath had four brothers? Could be. Okay. You're going to fight one, you're going to fight them all. And sure enough, he takes down Goliath. He runs up and lops Goliath's head off. The Israelite army is highly motivated, attacks the Philistines, and they win the battle. Now, here's the question. Who lifted David God. God anointed David to be king when David was a sheep herder. God continually throughout David's life lifted David from position to position. Question. Whatever status we have or haven't obtained in our life, To whom does the credit go? And the answer is God. It is God that was his shield. It was God that was his glory. And it was God who lifted him up. God did it all. Can you envision David running away from Absalom, slouching out of town, and struggling to handle this horrible circumstance? And at some point, he begins to remember what God had done for him in the past. And he said, God's going to do it again. That's David in the midst of adversity. I cried aloud to God, and he answered me from his holy hill. The holy hill is probably a reference to Jerusalem itself. Some message he received, some message he received from God, from heaven, quite possibly. And what did he do? I lay down and slept. Huh. Okay. Here it is. Your worst nightmare has happened. 
I don't know about you. I don't sleep through things like this. In fact, Teresa and I have this almost joke, but it isn't a joke. It's real. We get in bed, and she tells me all the problems of her day. And now she has them out of her mind, and she goes to bed. What do I do? I try to solve the problems that I can't solve at that point of the day. Why? Why was David able to lie down and sleep because he had the confidence that God was going to protect him? I mean, think about this. Who is going to protect him? God is my shield. Who is going to give him meaning and purpose in life? God is my glory. Who is going to lift him up if he's going to be lifted up? God. So what's David's problem? Nothing. He'll go to sleep. Isn't that phenomenal to think that you could do that? To think that you had such confidence in God that you could sleep in the midst of adversity. Kind of reminds me of some guy asleep in a boat. You remember Jesus? He's been preaching all day, tough day, lies down in the boat. All of his good sailor disciples are taking the boat across the river, I mean the lake, and a storm pops up. And what does Jesus do in the middle of this storm? He sleeps like a baby, which, by the way, makes absolutely no sense, that saying. You know, sleeps like a baby, wakes up every three hours and cries. But no, he slept. The disciples had to wake him up. Don't you know we're about to drown? And Jesus could have said, if he were bringing his inner David in, no, God is my shield, God is my glory, and God is going to lift me up. What do you think would have happened to that boat? Nothing. But the disciples were looking at the storm, and Jesus and David were looking at God and knew that God was going to take care of them. Fascinating. I mean, I've told you before. What did the disciples want Jesus to do? I'm convinced they wanted him to bail water with them. Here's a bucket. Bail. Jesus was just woken up and wanted to go back to sleep. So he just told the waves to stop. That's what you would have done, right? A trust in God that God is going to accomplish his purposes. It is interesting. Um, ben gave me a book about uh, the Psalms, Christ in the Psalms, written by a Catholic guy. And he says that this particular verse is used oftentimes when the monks awake in the morning. They say, I lay down and slept. I woke for the Lord sustained me. You know, if you're a soldier, sleep is a, def a difficult time because that's when you are most vulnerable. Unless you've got somebody watching you. And if that someone watching you is God, 
you're probably okay just speculating. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. The Lord took care of me, and I did not have to worry about the problem. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I don't know how many people you think are out to get you on any given day. Whether it's a handful, whether it's the whole other political party, whether it's the whole, those people, whoever they are. David would have said, I'm going to sleep because God's going to deal with that problem. God is going to deal with however many there are. Arise, O Lord. Now that's a strange thing to say, right? I've been asleep. I've been asleep because I know that God is taking care of me. And then he says, arise, O Lord. Get up, God. Go do something. This is fascinating to me. First off, his relationship with God that allows him to say things like this. You know, he is acknowledging that God is going to take care of him. That is his faith. And then he turns with his petition and he says, God, take care of me. I know you're going to do it. I have confidence and faith that you're going to do it. God, why don't you do it? He is asking God for something that he has faith that God will provide because God has provided it over and over again in his life. He has seen this situation. He has slept out in the middle of nowhere. He has seen this situation and he has seen God take care of him. Arise, O Lord, save my soul. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. We talked about in the first lesson that the book of Psalm is poetry. And as poetry, it does use some interesting imagery. Strike them on the cheek, break their teeth. What does that mean? Just smash them in the face. Take care of them. And that's what he's asking God to do. Now, it is interesting because he does love Absalom. So he is struggling with the reality that it is his son coming after him. But he knows that God is capable, and he knows that God will, and he asks God to take care of his enemies How many, how often do we, are we, bold enough just to ask God, take care of this situation? Now, David had seen this multiple times. This is a little bit of the discussion that I was having earlier of the way my strange mind thinks. Why doesn't God just take care of all of it once and for all, so I don't have to do this again and again and again. Because God wanted David to be faithful today, the next day, and the next day. 
In fact, what got David is in trouble when he didn't go out to fight like he should have been, and he was tempted by Bathsheba. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And here's the verse for you to memorize for the week. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing on your people. Now, if you read the story over in Samuel, where all this is taking place, it gets a little fuzzy because you know that Absalom is coming with a bunch of guys, and it looks like David is running away with his household. I mean, that's about it. But you also know that David's got troops over there and over there and over there, and they all start getting together, and they're going to make an army that's going to fight Absalom's army. David is going to divide his army into thirds. He's going to have a general in charge of each one of them. David wants to lead them into battle, and the generals say, no, no, no. If you go out in the battle, you're going to be the only target. Absalom will only want to kill you. You're better off if we put you behind and don't have to spend all of our guys protecting you. And he agrees. He has his armies. But is he trusting his army for his salvation? What does it say? Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is fascinating. We have to think about this. What is it that we are investing our confidence in for our salvation? It's like a friend of my father's once said, how much money do you have to have in the bank before you're willing to live by faith? (laughs) Think about that for a moment. Am I trusting in my salvation because I have money in the bank? Am I trusting in my salvation because I have friends? And money's fine and friends are great. Am I trusting in my salvation because I live in this country and not that country? Am I trusting in my salvation because I belong to this group and not that group? Am I trusting in my salvation in anything other than God. All that other stuff may be good, it may be bad, I don't know. But it was never meant to be that in which you place your hope of salvation. If your salvation is not coming from God, you will have no ultimate salvation. That's the bottom line. David knew what the men who have lived by, and women who have lived by faith have always known. It's all coming from God or it's not coming at all. We see this in the New Testament period. We see it in our world today where we trust and rely on lots of different things. And like I said, 
Those things can be good, they can be bad, they can be needed, they can be useful, they can be a lot of different things. But if you are trusting in your salvation for your family, from your family or your lack of family, your money or your lack of money, your position or your lack of position, you're in trouble. We today, this side of the cross, know that the only basis of salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. To the extent that I start tacking things onto that, that I think, oh, I need to do this, I need to do that, then we are knee-deep back in the book of Galatians that we just finished 21 lessons on, thinking that something has to be added to God. David knew the value of a physical shield. He knew the value of a physical sword. He knew the value of a tough army. He knew that. But he did not trust that for his salvation. God is my salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This isn't a guy sitting in church. This isn't a guy who's had a great dinner and feels content with himself and the world. This isn't a guy that is thinking, ah, everything's going great. This is a guy who has had everything pulled out from underneath him. And he is saying, what? That the blessings Come from God. Isn't that phenomenal? Here's my little problem. Here's David's huge problem. David relied on God for his huge problems. I should be able to rely on God for my little problems. Let me let you in on a little secret that you're not going to like. If I trust in God for my little problems, God may just give me bigger problems so I can trust in him even more. Isn't that interesting? If David had stayed in that field tending those sheep, he would have never had this problem, probably. But David heard the call of God, namely Samuel coming and dumping oil on his head, and he was obedient, and he took the next step. What do you mean you won't go out and fight Goliath? It's just one guy. Yeah, but he's nine feet tall. No problem. And every step he took, God produced in him more faith, more faith, more faith. So when it reached the point that he was running away from his son, and even if, and probably so, some of it was his fault, because he had not done what he ought to have done, he still continued to trust in God. So here's the observation. 
tomorrow you're going to have a problem. I can just guarantee it. I just really can guarantee that tomorrow you're going to have a problem. Somebody you know is going to say something that's going to tick you off. Somebody's going to cut you off on traffic. in traffic. I'm on the highway yesterday, and I have two people who pull into me like they don't. What are you doing? Anyway. <laughs> we get ticked off. So tomorrow, when you have this, what is in your eyes a huge problem, remember that that person, that situation is not going to define your salvation. They're not going to be the ones that protect you. They're not going to be the ones who give you meaning and purpose in life. That's going to be God or it's not going to happen. You can pray to God to zap your enemies. I mean, sometimes that bothers us. But if it bothers you, you're going to have a little trouble with a lot of the Psalms. Because there's going to be a lot of Psalms where David says, God, zap my enemies. That's not the exact word, but it's close enough. It's okay to say that. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, whether he does it today or 10 years from now, David is going to trust in God. One of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the idols. And the king says, we're throwing you in the fiery furnace. And they look at the king and they say, God can save us. But if he doesn't, king, let it be known, we're still not going to bow down to you. David trusted God because God had been faithful. David trusted God because he knew who God was. David trusted God because God was his only salvation. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that this week as we encounter the difficulties of our life, that we too would be like David and trust in you. Forgive us when we go chasing after our problems as if we are the salvation instead of trusting in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.